Hello, Velo News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News, coming at you with another Velo News tech podcast. And guys, we might actually see some racing coming up very soon. It's very exciting to know that the Tour de France is on the horizon, assuming all goes well. And so today I wanted to talk a lot about what we're going to see uh, in terms of gear, but more importantly, what we've seen in the past and how gear has affected a race like the Tour de France over the years. There's been so many moments uh, in which gear has factored into how the race uh, or a stage has been won or lost. Uh, perhaps in the last few years, the most notable moment was uh, Chris Froome's run up Mont Ventoux when after a crash, uh, he crashed into a motorbike, broke his bike, had to get a neutral support bike uh, from Mavic, got on the bike. It was way too small and had the wrong pedals on it. So Froome ended up sprinting up the hill as he waited for his replacement bike from his team. It became the story of that tour. Uh, you know, if you think about that Tour de France, that is one of the key moments and the indelible image of Froome running up Ventoux has basically stuck with everyone. So it, it brought to mind to me all the times that gear has really factored into how the race was won or lost and, and how the true innovation tends to come out uh, in July every year uh, in, in France. Uh, and this year it's, you know, August, September. So <laughs> sort of a, a unique situation. Uh, but I figured there was no one better to talk to about the evolution of technology over the course of many Tours de France than our own uh, European correspondent, Andrew Hood, who joins me today. Hoodie, how are you doing? Dan, how are you? Good to see you through the magic of Zoom, Skype, whatever we're on. Whatever, whatever, whatever we're on right now. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for coming. So Hoodie, Hoodie is in Spain, everybody, and uh, he's joining us via the miracle of the interwebs. Um, so, Hoodie, your your first Tour de France that you covered was 1996, correct? That is correct. I came over way back in the Stone Age of uh, the Internet back in those days. No GPS, no iPhones. It was a very different world. In fact, I was still, we were still sending sometimes stories by fax. That's yeah. how long ago that was. What's a fax, Grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> it's an old machine where you tie a note to a pigeon. You tell him to fly home. Nice. That's that's how they got uh, they got word out from the Titanic that it was ship uh, sinking, right? Like, there's, oh no, that was uh, Morse code. Um, so, Hoodie, you've covered a lot of tours to France. You missed one over the years. That was uh, what last year, right? Uh, when you were yeah, there. yeah. In fact, I kind of feel like Chris Froome, like I haven't won a tour since uh, 2017, kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> this last year had a had a just hit hit just kind of bump in the road. Literally uh, riding my bike uh, three days before going to the tour, just this weird little hole in the road, and I was drinking a water bottle, sticking the bottle back in uh, to its cage, had my hand on top of the bar, and just hit this. You know, it's one of those holes you 99 out of 100 times you go over this little bump and just chewed my front wheel. I just went straight down and snapped the old collarbone. Ouch. Well, uh, at least it wasn't, uh, you couldn't blame too much of the gear. That sounds like it was just bad roads. So fortunately for you, but some Tour de France riders have not been as fortunate. Um, now, over the course of the many Tours de France that you've covered uh, since 96, only missing one, that's pretty impressive, first of all. Uh, as somebody who's only covered, let's see, I've covered five now. And I'm only there for the first few days. Uh, I can attest to how exhausting the experience is. But it's also pretty incredible. You get this really incredible backlog of great stories. And, and Hoodie has told many of them. Um, but Hoodie, for, for those of us listening who haven't had the, the 
uh, privilege or the, the <laughs> I guess it's a privilege, to cover that many tours to France. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, your first year covering the tour versus now and how the bikes specifically have changed. Uh, what's been most noticeable to you as you uh, cover these tours and, and see how the riders react to different gear and, and tech? Um, what, what's the overall theme for you in terms of how bikes have changed since 96? Yeah, as, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, uh, obviously huge changes over the last, well, it's almost been 25 years. You know, really the transition from uh, into carbon. I mean, carbon's been the big transition point for, for tech on bikes, carbon wheels, carbon frames, carbon everything. Um, the big move toward uh, integrated design, I think, is really the biggest thing in the last 10 years, especially you're seeing bikes built as one machine as opposed to a collection of kind of individual parts. Um, you know, the electronic things happening, uh, you know, especially in the, in the tendencies toward the aerodynamics. And it's always that kind of inside that frame of the UCI limitations. I think that's, you know, they imposed that, you know, quite a few years ago now to kind of maintain the, the integrity of what a bike should look like. And still under that yoke of that weight limitation, really, that's way out of date, right? I mean, that, that goes back almost 20 years, 15, 20 years in the weight limitation. So I think in some ways, you know, sometimes the rules impede really how much more we could see on bikes in terms of uh, lightness and some of those kinds of issues. Um, but some of the things that kind of the takeaways for me, I think it, one of the big changes um, – it may, you might disagree with me on this, but it seems like the, the role of uh, a bike mechanic has mm -hmm. changed over the years. Because back in the day, man, it's like every big rider had his bike mechanic that he absolutely trusted. That often would uh, a mechanic would follow around a rider from team to team. And I know that big riders today still have their favorite mechanics and, and they'll, they'll follow them around. But it seems like that part of the racing has changed so much just because – the bike has changed so much that um, when you talk to mechanics these days, I, I remember talking to a mechanic at, at EF, he'd been around for quite a few years. He said, yeah, back in the day, you know, we literally would spend months and months building wheels, mm. you know, with spoked wheels. And now he goes, now it just comes to us, you know, comes to the, the, the wheels are pre-built. Right. All we're going to do is uh, put on some tires and our day is done. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff is built in before it even gets to the bike race. But it seems like, those kinds of things. And there were so many nuances to being a mechanic, how they would treat the tires before a race. They used to hang them up in a Belgian barn for two or three months to fix <laughs> the property. I think a lot of that's been replaced by science and technology and, and this, the push for performance that yeah. there's kind of takes away some of the magic maybe yeah. of, of some of that, some of that tradition cycling. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, actually in the very last uh, episode of the tech podcast or two episodes ago, I spoke with Jurgen Landry, uh, a mechanic formerly from BMC now on, on Groupama FTJ. And, you know, he, he agrees. He says, you know, the science has really come into play a lot more and the mechanics role has changed. Um, and his, his note was basically, you know, now the mechanic is part of a team that makes decisions, you know, rather than just the mechanic saying, okay, I'll swap out your handlebars. It's like, now I need to talk to, you know, this person over here who's studied the aerodynamics and this person over here who studies fit. And we all come together to make this decision for the rider who's also involved in that. So, yeah, so it's a little bit more science-based for sure, rather than feel, which, you know, I think so much of cycling in the past has been that by feel <laughs> sort of vibe, uh, the Belgian barn, uh, sort of thing. <laughs> um, but you bring up another good point, um, which is that aerodynamics have come into play a lot. Uh, you know, 
the weight limit thing is interesting because for the longest time, conventional wisdom was lighter is better, lighter is better, lighter is better. And, and that is the primary driver of, of bicycle technology. But now we realize how much aerodynamics really matters. But that's not exactly a new idea. I mean, Greg LeMond uh, probably brought that to the forefront uh, in the 89 tour um, with, you know, the first time we saw, you know, aero clip-on bars uh, in the tour. Um, so aerodynamics, not necessarily a new idea, but it is something that has become more and more important over the years. Uh, and, and like you said, with integration, I mean, think about 96 when you were at that first tour that you covered, you know, cables everywhere, you know. <laughs> uh, now, now, if you go to the tour and you wander through the, the, the paddock, you won't see cables exposed anywhere. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's definitely a huge thing. But, you know, the other thing I want to talk about is um, carbon. You know, that, that certainly has been the biggest uh, coup for, for racing over the years. Absolutely, you nailed it there. Let's talk specifically, Hoodie, about um, carbon wheels. Um, what have you seen over the years? Uh, because you were, you were at the tours where, where carbon wheels sort of made their debut. Um, what was the rider reaction like, and what were some of the moments that you can remember uh, specifically about how carbon wheels factored into the race and how the race was won or lost? Yeah, it was interesting because it was such a new technology that it kind of reminded me almost of the debate uh, we saw just over the last couple of years where they brought in uh, disc brakes. Yeah, Everyone's like, oh, the braking's different with disc brakes, so it's going to cause crashes in the peloton and no one knows how to brake on them. <laughs> and that was kind of a similar discussion at the time with uh, carbon, especially when the first carbon uh, wheels came on. You know, the braking is different, especially in the wet. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was certainly an issue. You know, there were some old school kind of guys saying, oh, you know, we shouldn't allow these carbon wheels into the peloton. That's going to create dangerous racing conditions. And I remember there were a few cases where I think um, one year in the Pyrenees, uh, Ulrich had some carbon wheels that, you know, they would put them on for the climbing stages. And, uh, you know, he came flying off the Perizuard, I think it was, and just came in too hot on a corner wasn't used to the braking, like overbraked and went catapulting and off into the uh, yonder. Mm. And uh, that was one of the famous cases where Armstrong at the time kind of, uh, you know, waved down the peloton and said, hey, you know, we're going to wait uh, for our fallen comrade instead of uh, just racing on at any cost. Of course, Armstrong could do that because he was in the yellow jersey and had the lead. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> quite easily a bit vanilla of it when you're off the front. Yeah. Um, but then the carbon wheels, you know, at the time, uh, you know, there were new technology. There were sometimes some issues we saw a few times where carbon wheels would just break. I mean, still kind of see that occasionally these days. Yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously much stronger now than they were kind of back in those earlier days. Yeah. Um, but it was also kind of some secret sauce. You know, the guys that had the good wheels, you know, they didn't want to share them with anybody. So there was kind of an arms race there for a while with some of that technology between the haves and the haves nots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, we... While carbon, it's important to think of carbon as an evolution too, because carbon from you know the mid '90s, early 2000s is not the same kind of carbon that's being used now. It's different. You know, there's all sorts of different layups. There's different resins. Everything has changed. And I think more importantly than that, um, disc brakes have really made carbon wheels uh, more viable because you take the the heat away from the brake track. 
Uh, and that's where a lot of failures were happening. It was delamination uh, from the, the resin heating up and then, you know, the carbon would let go. Um, that was the real danger, uh, more, more so than just the, the, the wheel collapsing on itself or anything like that. Um, and disc brakes have solved that problem for sure. Um, but that's not to say we still don't see failures. I mean, we saw, you know, Johnny Moscone's TT bike back, was it 2017, just collapsed. The wheels just collapsed. Um, and, you know, you know, those things are still possible. It can still happen that way. It doesn't happen often. Um, probably one of the more famous failures was Cavendish. Mark Cavendish's front wheel just folded in a sprint. I think it was the Tour de Suisse. I could be wrong on that. Um, but that stuff is pretty rare now. Carbon has just come so, so far. Um, and now, you know, because of that, because carbon is the wheel uh, material of choice, perhaps that's part of the reason why disc brakes are now being accepted in the Pro Peloton, which quite frankly, I mean, I covered my first Tour de France in 2015, and that would have been unheard of at the time to have disc brakes. Um, so, you know, the, the intersection of tradition and technology and cycling sometimes takes a little, a little bit longer to arrive at. Um, but Hoodie, you brought up a good point about Lance Armstrong waiting for, for Ulrich when that failure happened. Um, I spoke recently with, uh, our editorial director, Ben Delaney, about one of his favorite moments, uh, from the, the Tour de France where gear came into play and that sort, that same sort of, uh, let's wait for our falling guy, uh, did not happen let's hear what ben had to say ben delaney how are you doing today oh doing great dan thanks for having me on yeah thanks for coming on so so ben we i've been talking with andrew hood about uh, his favorite uh, tech moments from the tour de france over the years he's covered a lot of them you've covered a few you've covered a few yourself and uh you've uh, you've watched more than more than just a few let's talk about uh some of the notable tech moments you've seen and and what your favorite most consequential tech moment of the tour uh would be for you most consequential. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I love the tour tech because it's the time when all the, the latest and greatest stuff gets pushed out. Some is very much ready for prime time and some not so much. And, you know, everything from, you know, super high end, like 3d molded time trial bars for, for sky and Ineos or some, it's like Tony Martin putting grip tape on his saddle so he doesn't <laughs> slide off and, and causing uh, mild friction and discomfort. Um, yeah, so I geek out on all that stuff. The most consequential, though, uh, I would have to say was probably uh, Chaingate, Andy Schleck, Alberto Contador. What was that, 2010 yes. tour? Yes, sir. 2010 Tour de France. Yeah. Um, but, you know, mechanicals happen, right? You know, flat tires are a thing. And and, and so I think this this was probably most consequential for how it uh, kind of underscores – the, the unspoken agreements or lack thereof when something goes wrong, because things will go wrong. But, and, and it usually is like when the, when it's not a pivotal moment and a race leader gets, has a mechanical, the others will wait typically. And the, but with the race is on, the race is on, sorry, Charlie. Um, and so this was one of those where it was like, what, what it was kind of on the edge. So Schleck, just to re- refresher, Andy Schleck was in the Jersey uh, the yellow jersey. He was 31 seconds. I want to say he had a, had a lead on Contador in the overall, and was up the road uh, on a mountain top finish going to uh, Port de Bals. Was was up the road, he dropped his chain. Uh, the, the small group that Contador was in caught him and attacked him, 
And so that was the, the crux was like, was that the right thing to do? Should, should Berto have waited for Andy or was he right to attack? Did he know that he was having mechanical or did he think he was just tired or whatever? So, um, both as, you know, as you pointed out, both, both guys were on SRAM groups, um, painted up yellow for the, for the tour, yellow levers on the, on the black carbon group. Um, so yeah, that, that was probably the most, as far as gear stuff goes, I mean, we can dork out about like, you know, minute shavings of, of, you know, CDA here or there, or this tire being a hair faster, but it was going from the yellow, winning the race to not winning the race because of arguably because of gear is probably the most consequential. So that's my moment. And it's interesting too, because, you know, you think about, uh, you know, these guys peak performance, peak, peak everything, you know, and and we often say that the the race is often decided by milliseconds. So if if your gear failures, if your gears don't work or if your gear fails you in any way, that could be very consequential. And in this case, the, the um, controversy here seems to be that, you know, Contador, went right by him. And I don't, I don't know about you, Ben, but when I drop a chain and I get off my bike, it is pretty clear to every passerby that, <laughs> that, I, am, that I am fighting with a chain. And, you know, uh, Contador said afterward that he attacked before, uh, or he saw that, that Schleck, uh, you know, had a, had a mechanical. And so, you know, there's all that, that intrigue and, and, uh, polemics, if you want to call it that, uh, about whether or not it's right to attack when somebody's got, uh, a mechanical, uh, in this case that it only led to deeper drama, uh, given, given the results of that 2010 tour de France. For sure. For sure. And there was, you know, it's a small group. And I remember, you know, change, change are a funny thing. It's a very humbling experience when <laughs> just something goes <laughs> sideways and it, you can't immediately rectify it. I remember, uh, watching Tom Bona in the, the, uh, in a Roubaix coming into, um, blanking on the, I can see the forest in my Arnberg, mind. I want to, Arnberg. Arnberg. Yes. My old brain was trying to say, <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, dropped the chain and got the chain stuck behind the chain catcher. You know, these chain catchers are supposed to keep the chain from dropping all the way down to the bottom bracket, which they usually do. But if they're not adjusted perfectly or just dumb luck happens, the right. chain can slip past there. When you go to pull it on, it's now preventing your chain from getting on. And, yeah. and there, the front of the race had no idea what was going on. I mean, you could hardly see like one person in front of you, much less 20 people behind and cars and fans and right. mayhem. And Right. That was another another chain yeah. issue of a sort where it's just a very simple thing that had a huge impact yeah. on on Tom's race that day. Yeah, and it's all split-second decisions, right? I mean, so you could give Contador the benefit of the doubt. The guy's hopped up on adrenaline and, you know, what's the right decision right now? And even Schleck, right? You know, like I've, I've been going really hard on the road and have to stop and, you know, get my chain back on quickly. And I'm like, oh, God, how do I do this? And I was a mechanic for 14 years, and all of a sudden a chain sure. seems like, well, what do sure, I do sure. with this thing? So, so you know, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all interesting because this is, uh, you know, against the backdrop of this really intense moment. Uh, so yeah, those, those small moments are like, Oh, I dropped a chain in a normal training ride. That's no big deal. You put it back on, you keep going in, right. a, in a race. Everything changes. Right. Uh, interesting moment for sure. Ben, thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for your perspective on this. Appreciate it. Cheers. All right. So the yellow Jersey doesn't always matter. Apparently <laughs> it didn't uh, seem to matter for, for Mr. Schleck back in that 2010 tour when his chain dropped, uh, and Contador attacked. Uh, there's a lot to talk about about that particular tour, but that uh, that was an interesting moment. Um, 
Unwritten rules aside, let's talk about other uh, changes that you've seen. Now, before the show, you were talking a little bit about uh, a lot of the changes we've seen in drivetrains recently uh, and and how riders have experimented with different gear combinations, different drivetrains, uh, as as things like ETAP and DI2 have come into play. And you mentioned a little uh, something about uh, David Millar's gear choices uh, back, I think, in 2001, 2002. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. That's back when prologues were part of the Tour de France, something that's also been uh, cast aside in the, in the search for new dynamism for in terms of the Tour de France. Something I kind of wish we still had around with it back in the days of the prologue. I thought that was a great way to start the Tour de France. But that's when uh, Millar was the king. He, he decided to use just a single front crank as opposed to two to try to be a little more arrow, perhaps uh, save a little weight. Um, that ended up costing him, he later said, costing him a shot for the yellow jersey because I think it was Bradley McGee beat him by a handful of seconds. Mm. And he said he had some problems with his uh, gearing and just finding the right gear on a course. Um, and, and you'll see a lot of times those equipment choices can backfire on a rider. I mean, the, you know, the, obviously the, when you mentioned gearing, you know, the huge change in terms of what we saw even from the 1990s what riders were riding in terms of the, just their derailleur options, you know, back, uh, you know, what the biggest ring might've been a 25, 23, maybe 25 back in the day. And now we got riders almost riding you know, these compact gears. When we, we get to these really steep climbs, like the Zocalon, they're riding 30, 34s right. in the back. Right. Yeah. So the, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you know, with, with Millar's uh, single chain ring, choice that was definitely a bold choice back then i think now we're seeing uh more range in the cassettes which makes a single chain ring more viable it's still not something that's really embraced i mean it's you know you you run into issues with things like chain line um and and shifting performance but more more than that you know one of the biggest challenges for one by setups on the road bike is that the jumps between cogs is just so big uh, so finding the right uh, combination of, of gear in the back with the, the single chain ring up front can be challenging. Um, and that's probably why one by hasn't really caught on. Um, but, you know, now we've seen, you know, geez, last year, you know, everybody went to 12 speed. And, you know, there's even whispers that, that Campan- Campagnolo is ready to go to 13 speed. And, you know, so with those wide uh, gear ranges, do you think, Hoodie, do you think it's possible in the, in the near future that we might see one by get embraced? Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a question that uh, I, I, I would imagine having a hard time imagining it at the elite pro level. Yeah. Just because it is limiting, like you said, for some of those issues. And it's limiting, I think, just in the variety. I mean, it might work in some circumstances, but I think just – in, in kind of that day in day out racing bike, I doubt we'll ever see that. Yeah. That's just kind of my hunch. Yeah. But having said that, whatever the tendency in the peloton is, whatever one team gets in terms of it's a technological uh, advantage, a new bike design, a uh, new kind of uh, clothing, anything with arrow, it's a quickly adapted across the entire peloton. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's pretty hard to keep something a secret for very long right. in a peloton. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely word word travels fast for sure, um, and I think you know to be fair, we have seen one by setups in in TTs t- uh, time trials. You know, depending on the course, to, if it's a pretty flat course, and you know they want 
to save a little bit of weight and get that arrow edge. Absolutely, there's no reason not to. Um, but you're right, the courses vary so much now uh, that you know to, to go to a one by setup on your everyday road bike might be might be a bridge too far for a lot of these riders. At least until somebody comes up with a system that you know addresses the chain line issue and the the big jumps between cogs and things like that. Um, and, and that reminds me of another drivetrain situation, we should say. And, you know, like I said, I covered my first tour back in 2015. And I, I specifically, specifically remember there was, a, you know, it wasn't too far into that tour when Fabian Cancellara uh, was in yellow. And they had a really fancy schmancy bike for him. And so I was sniffing around the team bus to check out the bike. And I overheard a mechanic saying, oh, yeah, you know, Fabian will never ride electronic shifting that he just won't do it absolutely not uh and now man i mean last year at the tour i don't think i i don't think i saw maybe maybe one mechanical shifting system uh it just doesn't happen anymore everybody's on some sort of electronic group set um has that for you hoodie been a, a dramatic shift uh i mean you talk to a lot of riders uh and and you sort of this five years since since i started covering the tour seems to have been the transition of the old guard who stuck with rim brakes and uh, mechanical shifting into the new guard, who was all disc brakes and, uh, and, and, and electronic shifting. Is there still resistance in your experience from the riders to things like disc brakes and, and uh, uh, electronic shifting? I would, I would say very few. I think that some of the resistance comes from people just don't want to risk having a, a, a mechanical issue decide a race. Right. That's where that pushback comes back from the, from the racing, from the performance side of things at least. Yeah. Um, but as, as you're well aware, a lot of these changes are driven by for commercial reasons. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you had the conversation more than more than once where people are saying well, there's no real reason why the Peloton embraced disc brakes other than that's what bike companies wanted. But there are legitimate reasons why you do it as well. And I think that once the Peloton kind of gets its head around these things, you know, they get confidence in the battery for the for the shifters. They get used to braking with the disc brakes, and they realize it actually does brake better in certain circumstances and takes the pressure off the carbon wheels. So there's a few standouts, you know, holdouts, the people that are just stuck in their ways. I think Nibali is one of those little guard guys that, you know, likes his traditional setup, doesn't want to change. And if you're Vincenzo Nibali, you know, you have the right to say that. <laughs> yeah. um, but in, I think most of the young kids, too, uh, that come into the sport now, you know, of course, we're seeing this big tendency of younger riders you know, these phenomenons, Remco and all these young guys, Pogacar, you know, they've been they've been raised literally on electric and, and even disc brakes. So they're used to it. So it's not even an issue really, for this new generation coming in. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the disc brake situation is interesting because it was probably one of the few times where uh, the the racers didn't lead the way on some sort of new technology. It was something that sort of came from consumer end first and then went up. Um, and, you know, the argument was, you know, oh, who's asking for disc brakes? Nobody. Yeah, but also, a, you know, teams of engineers at various bike manufacturers realized that disc brakes were just better. Um, and I think that was part of the reason why the resistance to disc brakes took, went on for so long was that it wasn't something, like you said, that riders were asking for, but it was something that they realized was an advantage to them after the fact. I mean, a few a few episodes ago, I did an interview with uh, Phil Guyman, who's, you know, he's always doing his his KOMs and things like that. And, you know, he said, you know, for me, disc brakes, it was like, well, now I can just go faster and brake later into the corner. Uh, and that's an advantage for riders, right? And, and it took a while for them to see that that was an advantage. But again, you know, tangential stuff like, 
being able to use carbon wheels without freaking out that it's going to delaminate, right? That's a big benefit. Um, electronic shifting, I think, is a little more polarizing, right? Like it's it's faster, it's smoother, but it hasn't been without its hiccups for sure. Uh, you know, last year, Baki Molema made some uh, some waves that perhaps he did not intend to by uh, getting a little upset with his SRAM drivetrain uh, and and yelling some some choice words about it, and that ended up being a meme. Um, but you know, to be fair, I mean, I think it does simplify setups uh, and maintenance for the mechanics, which you know, again, the mechanics have be- become these you know sort of multitaskers, um, and, and then I think that for them, you know, SRAM's ETAP, for example, is so easy to set up. Um, so that simplifies things for the team. Um, Hoodie, what are some other moments? One of my favorite things to do, by the way, uh, at the tour is to to wander around the team, the team buses, and try to spot things uh, that I think might be relevant. Um, and there's one thing I spotted at the Giro d'Italia not too long ago, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a moment. But um, you know, just little secrets, little edges that that riders like to do. But a lot of times it's just personalization, right? Like some. Some like Tony Martin, for example, puts like textured textured uh, tape on his saddle to keep him in place. Have you ever seen anything nifty, cool while you're wandering about that that riders do that are unique to them? Even going back yeah. to like '96 or '97, I mean, anything in the the years that you've been following it. Yeah, I was going to say I think a lot of that stuff is taken out of the equation with this integrated bike design. There's not a lot of room really for personal touches anymore, is there? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, back in the day, you would see riders uh you know have their special tape i mean you can still do stuff like that but you know you would have riders who were very particular about their wheels set up about you know again like having their personal mechanic do their wheels and do their tubulars it was almost kind of a science into itself that riders were very particular about and that a lot of that is just almost gone now so when you do walk around uh you do walk around the pits you know a lot of it is really coming down to what I think I know you're going to talk about, just some real specific stuff that is brought out at a prototype level or just a kind of a really uh, weird kind of answer to a problem that arises during a race or a certain situation. Um, you know, the main thing we're seeing these days is just kind of like cool paint jobs, you know, like what's Peter Sagan having his bike? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, that's pretty cool these days or, you know, um, also with Primo Roglic has got some pretty cool paint jobs, customized stuff that, kind of adds a little uh, pizzazz to, to the bikes. I think cycling still sometimes a little bit stayed, and uh, I think we could do a little bit more Peter Sagans and the Peloton uh, for the benefit of everyone. For sure, for sure. Um, and the, the one thing that I was uh, kind of alluding at when I when I said that I was walking through the, the team buses one time, and uh, this was actually at the Giro, not at the Tour, um, but the, you know the personalization stuff, despite all of the uh, the integration, and everything still does happen to an extent. And and a good example of that was on Chris Froome's bike at the the Giro a couple of years ago. Um, you know, Froome uses these really strange chain rings. They're they're not round. They're they're sort of elliptical, um, and they're they're basically designed to eliminate the dead spot in his pedal stroke. The problem with that is that they're the gap between the front derailleur and the chain rings changes drastically. So if you shift shift at the wrong moment, you can drop a chain. So Froome at, at the, the Giro a few years ago was actually running this really small 3D printed chain block uh, on the bottom side of his chain stay uh, to prevent the chain from getting jammed in there. Uh, should he should he drop a chain? And it was just glued on there. It was very you know n- not a pretty thing, but it was very functional. And 3D printing to me is one of the things that has just blown up in recent years. I mean, it was a uh, I think three years ago, 
where uh, Team Sky, now Ineos, now Ineos Grenadiers, I believe, as of today. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah. Um, they, they, were, um, they were experimenting with 3D printed handlebars made out of titanium. Uh, and that was just crazy at the time. Uh, but now 3D printing is, is a thing in, you know, physique and specialized both have saddles that are 3D printed. There's other parts that are completely 3D printed, which even five years ago, four years ago would be unheard of. So, you know, we live in a, in a pretty accelerated time of tech. Um, and it's pretty interesting to think back to, you know, the, the days of 96, 97, when, you know, it was a big deal that Lance was running, you know, a shifter on one side and just a regular lever on the other with no shifter on. I mean, it just that was that was the big thing and now we we are seeing just technological advancements we wouldn't have even dreamed of when you were at your first tour de france hoodie um and even when i was at my first one in 2015 i mean things have just changed i mean i i, I said in a recent article that even the bikes that in 2015 that i covered and took all these photos of would be museum pieces now uh which is pretty incredible um so yeah i, th- I think it's pretty interesting and it's gonna be fun to see what what we see at this year's tour that just blows our mind. And in two years we can say, man, I can't believe we thought that was like the, the height of technology. Uh, hey, what, what do you, what's some, what, what, what do you think a bike will look like in, in 10 years? How will, how will it look different than a bike looks right now? You think of the tour de France? Well, I, I mean, I think we're already starting to see the next phase, right? So, you know, just in the last few years, we've seen this sort of this junction of, you know, all around bikes versus aero bikes. And now we're seeing those come together again. Uh, and, and the all-around bike is becoming the aero bike, and the aero bike is becoming the all-around bike. Uh, and that's because we're, we're starting to understand the intersection of lightweight and aerodynamics. And, and that has a lot to do with, you know, when the UCI got rid of the three-to-one tubing rule, uh, which was that, you know, tubing, uh, the, the tubing can't be, uh, I'm going to screw this up, but it can't be more than three times, the, le- the length can't be three time, more than three times the width of the tube. Um, and so that was this... Um, this this limit that was imposed on these engineers who were saying, well, we can make it go faster uh, <laughs> yeah. than that. Um, and so they did. And and they went really big with the aero tube shapes. And now we're seeing that dial back a little bit because you want to you want to hit that intersection of the perfect the perfect intersection of aero versus lightweight. Um, it'll be interesting to see in the near future. Uh, if if the weight limits change, that could have a pretty significant impact on what bikes look like. Uh, and I think the takeaway here is that the guys who are riding the Tour de France are not riding the fastest bikes ever made. They're riding the fastest bikes ever made within the constraints of the UCI rules. That are a lot of the Tour de France, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Hoodie, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. And, uh, and, uh, hopefully we can, we can, uh, pick up on some new tech moments this year at the tour. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to go, but you're going to be there, I hope. And, you know, you'll have to report back and, and see what we find. Uh, thanks again uh, for, for taking some time today. All right, Dan. Thanks anytime. Appreciate and for, for those of you listening, if you have questions about this podcast or any of the other podcasts in the Velo News atmosphere, please do feel free to email me at dcavallari at velonews.com or hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at Brown Dan. And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode of the Velo News Tech Podcast, I am absolutely happy to have you do my work for me. So please do reach out. And thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.